Morning, we all coming through, yeah? Great. If you've got your Bibles, want to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Hey, we're in Exodus 20 this morning. Um, sorry, my name's Paul. If you're new here as well, let me introduce myself. It is my job to take us through uh, the second part. There's a two-part that you join us in as we walk through the 10 commandments. So let me just give you a bit of an, a, a review of what we did last week, just to get us up to speed so we know whereabouts that we are. So last week we saw how in the 10 commandments, God reveals his character to us. And it's a way in the Ten Commandments for God's already redeemed people to live rightly before him. And we saw that the Lord has different uses. It can be used to teach God's people how to live. It restrains sin. It reveals our need for the Savior. We saw that the, the civil laws that, that governed Israel as a society and the ceremonial laws of the sacrificial system, they weren't binding for us today as they were all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, which left the moral law. The Ten Commandments, which although not binding, they have a great worth because they show us God's character and how to live in relationship with him. And then we looked at different ways to interpret this moral law, which would be helpful for us to be reminded of today as we use some of them again just to look at the second set of commandments. And just three of them that I want to pull out for us, which would be helpful for us. First of all, we've got the, the inside-outside rule. So these rules aren't just external actions but they're internal things, desires and thoughts. We have the two-sided rule. So, so where something is stated negatively, there's also something positive that comes with it. For example, we're going to look at do not, do not murder today, which requires on the positive side a high view for the sanctity of life. We've got a, the category rule, which is it's not just the sin at the top that's being mentioned, but all the other sins, like an umbrella underneath it. So it would be, for example, today we'll look at not just adultery, but for other sexual sin. And so with that in mind, we're going to turn to Commandments 5 to 10. And just to give you an understanding of why we do it this way, Commandments 1 to 4 are all about loving God. They're all about putting God first. It's all about living within the grain of reality. And it's from that vertical relationship that, that then pours into our horizontal relationship. So that vertical relationship with God, of, with God of, of, of worshiping Him alone, of worshiping rightly, of not taking His name in vain or trivializing Him and, and resting in His finished work that pours into loving our neighbor. So loving God rightly leads to loving others rightly. So let me read. I'm going to go from verse 12 down to verse 26, then I'll pray. So verse 12 should be on the screen as well. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. When, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus shall you say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. 
An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let me pray. Father, I thank, so, thank you so much that you are a God who cares. You are a God who loves. You are a God who speaks. That you have not left us alone. That you've spoken to us. That you've moved towards us. Father, forgive us for our sin. And as we process this today, as we are faced with so much as we walk through this passage, Father, I pray that, that we will see the, your perfection, your righteousness, your glory. But Father, I also see that we will see the wonder of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would experience the liberty of forgiveness of sins and the newness of life that we walk in. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take them one at a time like we did last week and just work our way through them. So they will be on the screen, but again, it's good to have them in front of you so you can see the context of what's going on here. And we'll make our way through. So commandments number five, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay. And telling us how to love one another. So this whole section is going to be looking at how do we love our neighbor? God starts with the family. I think it's key for as we read God's word that a healthy family is a key building block to the health of a community, of a society, of a nation, even as we see it here. And that word honor, that is it, the actual it means weighty. It's like a weighty honoring, a gravity to it, a meaningfulness to it. So we're to give our parents respect, recognizing them for their, their God-given authority. God himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've got that positive and negative rule. So alongside the positive, there's a do not disrespect our parents. The Bible talks a lot about not disrespecting parents. The New Testament as well as the Old Testament is, is full of this. And if you were to look for a second outside the society, to read the news, to hear the, the movement in culture and in institutions, it's, it's no accident that the one way that society is being pulled apart is actually through the splitting of the family unit. There is a systematic deconstruction of the family going on at the moment as a key stabilizing unit of society. God's clear here. Honor both your mother and your father, both mother and father, not just one, both mother and father. And it's fundamental to the health of Israel. There's a promise here that your days may be long, which, which is a Hebrew phrase, and it means the, the fullness of God's blessing as you walk this way. It's similar to saying to have abundant life. And this is a, an umbrella term. And so there are other things that are attached to this. So we are to have respect for any legitimate authority over us. So what that means is we respect governmental authorities. We respect civil authorities. We respect authorities in our workplaces. We respect church leaders. And the flip side of that being that the people in authority have a responsibility too to use their authority for the good of those in their care. Church leaders workplace bosses, parents, were to lead in a life-giving, service, sacrificial way. And this principle of the heart of this, this honoring parents, it applies to, to all children, to young, to what our culture would call teenagers, to young adults, and then upward through life. And let's not distance ourselves from this command because, yes, this changes. It does change with circumstances. It changes with situations. So I'm now 45. That has changed. I'm married with kids. 
My mum passed away 10 years ago. That, that changed how I related and honored my father. There were circumstantial and situation change, situational changes there. Okay, and it will change over time. It will change in the present. It will change in the future. So the question that we have to ask is, does your relationship to your father and your mother, does it bring glory to God? Do you speak well of your parents? Let's take that inside. Do you think well of your parents? Do you care for your parents in the appropriate way at their stage of life? What does that look like for you? Teenagers, I want to include you in this. Because obviously you're in this service, so let's talk to you just for a second. Let's make it really, really awkward. Let me talk in that tone of voice. My question is, do you talk back? Do you answer back rudely to your parents? And I would even raise this bar up for you, okay? Let me just say, I said about teenagers, that's a term that's only come in in the past couple of hundred years. I would ask, don't believe a lie, you're going to be peppered with lies. You are, from our culture, about the way that you talk and relate. You're going to be... Don't try to be someone that you see on High School Musical. I'm showing my age there, probably about 15, 20 years ago, isn't it? High School Musical, teenagers, these influencers that you see on the Instagram, the Snapchat, the YouTube, and I'm sounding like a really old man, but just go with it, you know what I'm saying? Don't let them be the primary shaping force in your life. Don't. And don't believe the lie also that you are not to have responsibility till you get to the age of 18. You will not flourish as a human being that way. You will flourish at the age of 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way through when you care, when you love, when you serve others. I remember um, quite a few years ago, and I must have been about three or four years ago, we started a new gospel community, and there's only a, a few of us. B was in it, and Josh from another church, he was in it. So I think there's about five or six of, it, six of us. And because there's only a few of us in number, we gathered the kids before everyone came. My kids were five, seven, and nine at the time. We sat around the table, we said, look, there's going to be starting this new group, but you guys are instrumental in this. We want you to, to host as well as us. We want you to make sure they're okay. We want you to offer drinks. We want you to, to make things. We want you to make eye contact with people as they're speaking to you and ask them good questions. Sit down next to them and ask them. Don't just go off. And you know what? They responded. It was incredible. One of them made a cake. They came and offered drinks. They chatted. When we had the prayer time, they sat with us. And one of them actually prayed during that prayer time. I pray that this gospel community will be full of people from every nation. God answered that prayer. In fact, the seeds of that gospel community went on to become the Kensington Church plant. It actually morphed into that with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue there. Folks, include your kids. Kids, get involved. We've got three people, three kids here who are, who are thinking through um, what it means to go on a church plant. And I have to say, I'm in a gospel community with them and hearing their prayers and hearing their thinking has been an absolute inspiration for me. You are part of this. You are part of this, a really key part, an instrumental part, and we value you. Remember, though, as we come to close each of these commandments, I want to take us somewhere. That in our failings in this, because we will all fail in some area, we'll all feel a, a weight of guilt, especially when it comes to processing relationships with parents. Remember that in our failings, we're to look to Jesus. He was the only perfect child. To his earthly parents and to his heavenly father, he did as his father commanded him so that the world would know that he loved the father. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Okay, so the Hebrew language, I'm told by the experts, has eight different words for killing. And our translation, which is the ESV translation here, is really helpful because it specifies murder. And that's what the, the context is here. It's explicitly the unjust taking of an innocent life. And positively, what that means, it calls for God's people to have a high view of the preservation of life. 
And the, the, the heart of that is because every single human being has been made in God's image. Every single, every single human being. There's no one alive who does not bear God's image. John Calvin, a few centuries before, said this, our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse him, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God himself who images himself in every soul. God is the giver and taker of life. He is the Lord of life. And so as God's people, we are to preserve the sanctity of life. Folks, what that means is that we unashamedly hold to biblical positions on abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, and assisted suicide. Psalm 139 beautifully speaks of this. It says that God forms people in the womb. He knits them, he knits them together as embodied souls. So what that means, folks, is that an unborn child has a relationship with God as well as with the mother in the womb. So we are in grace, love, and boldness to protect the sanctity of life. But remember that, that inside-outside rule that it's not just for these external actions. So we may not murder someone. On one level, that's kind of easy, isn't it? But we may hate them. We may wish bad upon them. We may allow our thoughts and our desires and anger and bitterness to run amok. And so you see, in what God does here in forbidding murder, what he actually does, he shows that he hates the roots of it. So anger and hatred and envy and bitterness, holding grudges, revenge, all those things, they all come from a, a murderous heart. This command, folks, exposes everything that goes on in our hearts. And what it should do, it should drive us to the feet of Jesus pleading for help. We need the Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one who did this perfectly in every way. You see, he himself was murdered. Yet his stunning grace offers forgiveness for his murders, murderers, for the guilt that is being committed. Moses, who's writing this and giving it to the people and communicating it, remember he killed the Egyptian. Imagine his processing, imagine his thoughts as he relayed this. What's being made clear is that his grace and there's forgiveness, not just for those with anger and hatred and envy, but there is even grace for those who have acted this out even those who have killed. And seeing this grace, what it should do, it should melt our hearts. It should fill us with a love from God so that angry and resentful and envious people, which we can all be, maybe now and at some point in our life will be, can be people who will love our neighbor. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. So the Bible's clear from, from start to end that sex is a gift from God. Sex is a gift from God. It is for love, for pleasure, and for joy to be exclusively enjoyed within marriage between one man and one woman. See, what adultery is is sexual intercourse that breaks the bonds of marriage. And many of us know, either firsthand or through observation, how harmful that can be. And this is a, a category or an, or an umbrella rule that speaks against all inappropriate ladies, behaviors that might lead up to that sexual act. The New Testament speaks very strongly against what it terms porneia. Even premarital sexual contact between an engaged man and woman is spoken against. Any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one ma woman is not to happen. God is saying, that's not my will. God's saying, that's not the purpose of sex. And therefore, therefore, this is key, folks, as well. It's not good for you. 
It's not healthy. No matter how good or what it feels like in that moment, isolating sex from its purpose will always end up causing harm. The flip side of that is that sex is designed to be a powerful force for good. A pastor in America called Tim Keller actually used a really helpful phrase. He says that sex within marriage is a covenant cement. It's a covenant cement. It builds love, it builds intimacy, it builds joy, and it builds pleasure. It's actually an act of service, not an act of self-gain that we think it is. It's an act of service to the other. You see, what, what's going on here within marriage and within sex is that marriage is a union between a husband and a wife, but it's actually a picture of the gospel. The Bible's clear, the New Testament. I read of Ephesians 5 to get a real picture of this. It actually transcends, so marriage transcends itself in many ways because it points above and beyond to some greater reality. And it's the greater reality is the picture of Jesus Christ's love for his church. That's why the church is called a bride. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. So marriage is a picture of the gospel. That's the broader, the broader picture that helps us to see the magnificence of what it is, the wonder of what it is. And so, so marriage and sex within marriage is a foretaste of the intimacy, the joy, and the pleasure that we will experience with God for all eternity. That's the reality that it ultimately points to. And so this reality here pales into insignificance with what is to come. That's why we can all look forward to hope, married and single. We can all look forward to in hope. And the inside-outside rule helps us this. So, so what that says is that lusting and wrongful desires within, they are also destructive. And that lustful desire, the wrong desires within, it could be. It could be men looking at women as objects, objects for their own pleasure or gratification, whether or not that is in real life or whether or not that is on a screen. That's fantasizing and using your imagination, all destructive in relationships. So where do we all turn in this difficulty, which we all experience in some way? In some way, we turn to Jesus Christ. It's so liberating as we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to each and every one of these, because we will see how much we fail, and it should turn us to Him. He is the the only human being, the only one who has ever lived who was truly pure. He walked his whole life, inside and outside, rightly and purely. He is the only perfect groom the only perfect husband. He is the only perfectly faithful spouse. He is the place that we find forgiveness. There's an old preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones who says this. He says it so much better than I can say it, so I want to read his quote. He says this, even adultery is not an unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, But God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside the kingdom because of adultery. No. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and boundless mercy and boundless grace of God, you can be forgiven. And I assure you of your pardon. Turn to Jesus, knowing that no matter what we have done sexually, there, there, at the cross and in relationship with God, we can find forgiveness, we can find freedom, and we can find life. We come to command number eight. You shall not steal. That word is ganaf. It means taking someone's property unlawfully. 
could be burglary or car theft or shoplifting or pickpocketing or purse snatching. It could be embezzlement or racketeering or extortion. It could be fraudulent claims or fraudulent insurance claims. It could also be, include stealing from our workplace. It could be stealing paper or supplies, a paperclip, even time. But why is it bad? Why is this bad? And I think it's two, two, two roses. And I think we need to see this to understand all of them as they flow through. Because stealing is actually sinning against God. What are we doing? We're not trusting God for his provision. We're not trusting him for his provision for us. And we're taking what he has provided for somebody else. And therefore, it also becomes a sin against our neighbor. It's taking what is theirs that has been given to them by God. And if we put that to one side now and flip it to the other side, there is a positive side to this stealing. That's called stewardship. So what is a steward? A steward is someone who cares for someone else's property. The biblical view that we have here is that everything that we have and everything that others have is actually God's. He owns all things. And biblically, we have been given the task of looking after what we have for God, to use it for his purposes. There's a, um, a commentator in America called Jerry Bridges. He, he describes these three attitudes he says, the first attitude is, what is yours is mine. I'll take it. That's the attitude of a thief. Second attitude is, what is mine is mine. I'll keep it. Which, let's be honest with you, that's the selfish attitude that most of us have most of the time. It is. Let's just be honest. We, we might not be remitting it now, but that's the reality of it. And the third attitude is, what is mine, what is, mine is God's. Therefore, I'll share it. That's the biblical attitude from the character of God. See, Christians throughout God's word are called to live radically generous lives. Generous lives that pour into the people around us for the good of those around us. To live with open hands to our brothers and sisters, but also to those in need around us. And why? What is the motivation? We turn to Jesus again. What did he do? He left the throne room of heaven. He left perfection and purity of every eternal and heavenly blessing to come into the brokenness of this earth that we created, to come into poverty. And what did he do? He died in our place. Where did he die? He died between two thieves. In their place, the place of criminals condemned for thieving. And he took our sin and took our guilt. And what does he do in return? Well, he gives us everything that he has. He gives us the very riches of heaven, which we don't deserve. He gives it for free. As believers, as children of God, we've been given an inheritance. We didn't do anything to deserve it. He gives us an inheritance. Every eternal blessing, now and forever. We have, as believers, everything that we need. Everything that we need. Every material blessing we have now or in the future, we've been given to steward. For his glory. Command number nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Bearing false witness is not telling the truth. Telling lies. That could be dishonesty, big lies, little lies, white lies, half-truths, fabrications. It could be falsifying something. It could be flattery or fibs or blags. It could be leaving out details for personal gains. It could be the truth given with the intent to deceive. It could be overstating things for your own personal gain. It could be on the flip side of it, using our words to break down others. It could be slander, misinformation. It could just be plain gossip. 
which if you've ever come across gossip or ever been involved in gossip or the actual victim or perpetrator of it, you can see that it is destructive to both those speaking the gossip, hearing the gossip, and the focus of the gossip. So we can ask ourselves questions when we speak. Think of the relational dynamics that you might have. Are you honoring the person when you speak? And maybe no one but your closest friend is around or in your home or even in your mind. Are you honoring people when you speak? Is it true? I think this is a really helpful question. It's a helpful question for me to think through. If the person that you are speaking about was actually there, right there in that room, right there with you, listening to you, would you say the same words in the same way? That's challenging, isn't it? Would you say the same words in the same way? Folks, take the time to reflect on your conversations. Take the time to reflect on the relational dynamics. We can get so caught up in these. Take the time to reflect. And as we think through this whole service today, leading into communion a little bit later on in the singing, take it to God. See, the positive side of this is that as believers, we as Christians, we are people of truth. The Father's full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So truth is an, an overflow, an outworking of God's character. And as God's people, therefore, it's an outworking of the character of God within us. It's our relationship with God. And so on a positive side, are you thinking and saying the best about people? I need help for this. I fall down here. Do you defend those who are being attacked? Do you speak the truth in love or do you shy away? Do you move towards people even when you're not sure how it's going to go? To say something and speak something to them that you think will actually be restorative and healing. And being truthful about yourself, truthful about your sin, leads us to the truth of the gospel. See, that internal integrity of truthfulness actually leads to liberty. It leads to being liberated. It means we can be honest about our guilt and our shame. And when we're honest about our guilt and our shame, we can actually leave them, take them and leave them at the cross. Because Jesus Christ, what did he say? The truth will set you free. Lies, all these things break community. God is truth and truth builds up community. Commandment 10. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What that means is that it means when we set our hearts, our minds and our desires on something which is not rightfully ours. And there are many ways that, that we might covet depends upon who we are, what circumstances, situation of life we have. So it, it could be just a feeling of disappointment when someone in the work or a job, gets a job that we're going for or gets promoted and we don't. It could be possessions. It could be cars that other people might have. It could be clothes that other people might have. It could be a house that other people have got. It could be a lifestyle. So it could be all the holidays that people go on. It could be socializing in different ways with different people as you look in and think, I wish I was there. It could be sexual. It could be someone else's husband or wife. It could be an attribute. It could be age. It could be wanting to be younger. It could be wanting to be older. It could be how intellectual you are and your capacity in your mind. It could be that you want to be better looking. You want to be more popular. You want to be part of the in crowd. 
You don't have a certain gift or a certain talent. So it could be a situation in life. I want to be married. I want to be single. I want to have kids. Could be I want to be in a different gospel community. I'm not happy. Paul is saying here the coveting is idolatry. Because it's taking something of someone. It's thinking that something or someone gives satisfaction and fulfillment in the way that only God can. And what's really interesting as we come to this last commandment is the coveting is actually within us. It's within us. It's an internal thing, isn't it? By its very nature. And it shows us that God means these commandments that they have internal causes. They have internal dimensions to them. Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, says this. If you compare yourself to others in what you think are easy sets of rules, e.g., I haven't killed anyone. It's an easy one. For, for many people. I haven't killed anyone, therefore it's okay, I'm getting on okay. I'm getting on all right. But suddenly, he says, when confronted with the inward command not to covet, you're brought to your knees. We'd be lying if we said we didn't covet. We'd be lying then as we filtered these back to all these other commandments and thought we didn't do those internally. See, this internal command, at the end of the commandments, drives us to God for mercy. Because when it does, it reveals, it, it draws the curtain back on the sinfulness of our hearts. But the flip side as well, folks, is it also shows us how to live rightly. It shows us the path to full life, which isn't based on our circumstances or situation. You see, the positive side of this is what's called contentment. Coveting, wanting what someone else has, starts in discontentment. Discontentment with what you have in all your areas of life. So the sentence becomes, if only I had. If only I had. If I had this or that, my life would be better. I would be happy. Things would be good. So just you can fill in the blank for you. That could be your marriage. It could be money. It could be a job. It could be ministry. Whatever it is. If only I had. My life would be better if dot, dot, dot. What is that for you? See, if our contentment is based on things of this world, we're going to be miserable. We really are going to be miserable. God's word clearly tells us that he provides for us. We have everything we need right now, right here. And God calls us to glorify him to the fullest. Now, whatever the situation, Paul in Philippians says this, that he learned to be content. He learned to be content when he had lots, and he learned to be content when he had little. And what that means is that, that when you look at the heart of it, contentment itself is a theological issue. What do I mean by that? It's a relationship with God issue. We're content or discontent because of our relationship with God. And Paul is saying here, the contentment is not in our circumstances because our circumstances are always going to change. But we can always be content, no matter how bad situations get, because of our relationship with God. We have all that we need in Jesus. The Father has given us the greatest gift that he has, which is his Son. And he sees us. He knows us. He cares for us. He notices us. Even when we think that no one else notices us, he does. He notices you and he sees you. He loves you and he has provided for you. So in our struggle for contentment, start by looking to Christ. Just imagine, folks, imagine a community, a group of people who lived all of these commands out. A community that honored God, Worship God rightly, resting in his provision, respecting authority and family and marriage and sex, preserving the sanctity of life, speaking only truth in love, 
living generously as good stewards, a contented people in every area of life. That would be a beautiful community, wouldn't it? It would be a flourishing community reflecting God's character. But what stops this community happening is the reality and presence of sin. We have to talk about sin. We have to. We can't talk about human beings without sin in this state. We have to talk about it. We have to deal with it. You see, what happens is that sin has created a division between us and God for those first four commands. That's why it's spoken that way. And sin has created a division because of the division between us and God has created a division between us and each other. Sin is what stops us flourishing as human beings. And what this law does here, it shows us God's perfect, beautiful character. And it shows us what beautiful community looks like. And also, when it does that, it shows us how far we are away from God's standard because of our sin. And the question that just sits there is, well, how can sinful humanity be in the presence of this holy and pure and perfect God? We see it here in Moses' day. 18 to verse, 20, verse 18 to 21, they are so aware of God's holiness, his purity, his power that they fear. They are acutely aware of their own sin and their own feelings. And they're aware of God's presence and perfection. That purity is awesome power. And they're afraid. They're afraid and they stand far off. And they have this great need. They need someone to stand between them and God because of their sin. They need someone to bring God's word to them because of their sin. They need someone to go into the presence of God on their behalf because of their sin. So what does God do? God in his grace provides a mediator. He calls Moses to be that person. And Moses, verse 21, we read, he, he drew near. He drew near the presence of God on behalf of the people. But sin was still a problem that needed dealing with. Even for Moses. And so what we read, verse 22 to verse 26, is that, that God gives provision for Israel to deal with their sin. Look at verse 24. Let's read that together because it's key. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Verse 24, they are called to make an altar where God would meet them, where earth and heaven would join. And what they are to do is to offer a burnt offering. He tells them about two offerings here, and they're both keys. So that first offering is a burnt offering. That burnt offering is what's called a sacrifice of atonement. Okay, easy way to understand this, at one month. Okay. So what we've got is we've got a separation between two groups. God and humanity are separated because of sin. Purity cannot be in the, the presence of impurity and sin because otherwise it wouldn't be purity. A price needed to be paid for the cleansing and the purity to happen and that price was death. And so what happened? The perfect animal was placed on the altar and then that perfect animal was totally consumed in fire and the smoke offering would rise to heaven as a picture, as a picture of that offering being risen to heaven into the place of God to appease the wrath of God so the people would see it rising, to see it going up. So the animal would die in the place of a sinful human being. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. And the other sacrifice that's being mentioned here is what's called a peace offering. That's from the word shalom or shalom. 
And that has a slightly different focus because what that showed is that the relationship that God had with his people once atonements had been made. So the peace offering, also called the fellowship offering, showed that the people were no longer separated from God. You see, in the burnt offering, the whole thing was, it was burnt up in the fire. There'd be nothing left of it. But in the peace offering, it was only the fat that would be burned up as an offering. The rest would then be cooked and the people would eat it in celebration. So the fellowship offering was a feast shared with each other and God in God's presence. Do you see that? That's shalom. What it refers to is the condition that you've experienced from being in right relationship with God. It's not just the, the absence of war and conflict, but it's the presence, the state of blessing once sin has been dealt with and we're in right relationship with God. So what the people did, they enjoyed a celebratory meal in the presence of God. Can you see that? They're standing far off and God is saying, no, I am making it so that you can come near me. I am providing a way. Folks, this is all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all helping us to understand what he did, who we are. See, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he lived perfectly. Yes, every deed, but also every thought, every desire was in line with the Father's will. He fulfilled every single part of God's law, every part of it. And unlike Moses, he could actually walk into the presence of the Father in sinless perfection. But on the cross, he became sin. He who was perfect became sin. Our sin, all the sin that we've been thinking about that we've gone through these past two weeks, all the sin that we thought, committed, and done was placed upon him. Every sin from every single believer who has ever lived and will ever live was placed upon him. He absorbed it all. He took the infinite wrath of an infinite, eternal, all-powerful God on himself. He took our guilt. He took our punishments. What he gave was a full, complete offering, crying out, it is finished. What that means is the wrath and the anger of God against sin was exhausted. Atonement was made. Separation between us and God and each other because of our sin was gone. And dying, he rose physically from the dead, and then he ascended. What that means, the Bible says he ascended, he went up into the place of God. He physically rose. Christianity is clear. The Bible is clear. Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. And Jesus Christ physically ascended. He went up into the presence, into the place of God. So humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ is now in the place of God, is now in God's presence. You see, Moses, he was a type. But unlike Moses, Jesus Christ never sinned. Unlike Moses, Jesus Christ will never die. He is forever mediating for us. He is forever interceding for us. He is forever speaking God's word to us. You see, in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in belief in him is where perfect relationship with God is found. Only in him. God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his son, gives us shalom. Gives us shalom, that state of blessing, that state of every eternal blessing. He gives us perfect fellowship. It's given to us. Never ending. Life 
given pure fellowship with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, what can we do? We can boldly, boldly in him approach the throne room of heaven. We too can go into the very place of God. And it is there that we find forgiveness. It is there that we find grace. And it is there that we find mercy in times of need. And what does our gracious God do? He pours out his Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, into us to help us to walk in the reality of this life. To help us walk in a way which is flourishing for us. To help us to walk in a way which is in line with his character. With our gaze fixed on that day when he's going to return. On that day when we will all be made new. When sin will be no more. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I long for the day when the presence of sin will be completely and utterly gone. Just beautiful, perfect fellowship with God, with each other, and with the new creation. And as we turn now to to communion, God, in his grace, gives us this fellowship feast. He gives us this fellowship feast as a reminder. So what I want us to do is to, to take our time through this, to actually reflect on this passage, to reflect on what we've heard in the past two weeks, to reflect on what God has brought up within you, to reflect on the things that God has been laying in your heart. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here today, I want to welcome you here. I'm so made up that you get to hear this, to see this, to be amongst God's people. And I I would love for you to consider what is being said here. We can't reach that perfect standard of God's law, but God has made a way. You don't have to do anything. You have to trust in Christ's finished work. This offer of grace is free. That seems too good to be true. It is too good to be true, but it is true. It is incredible. You don't do anything. We just trust him. He's done it all. And then he gives help for us to walk rightly before him so that we can flourish and have joy. So I ask that you would trust him, even now that you would trust him and take and eat and join us. But if not, I I ask that you would let this pass. If you want prayer or talk to us about anything, please come and speak to us. Cornerstone Church, let's use this time really well. You see, we're looking back to the Exodus, thousands of years before this time now. And what are we seeing? We are seeing a group of people who are hearing God's word proclaimed in God's presence. And God provides a feast for them to remind them that you are my redeemed people. You are my treasured possession. I have made a way. You can come to me. You are forgiven. There is help for the walk. There is help in my spirit. I am here. You are loved. You are cared for. He provides a feast for them. It is the same God. God has provided us a feast because they're all pointed to the same place, and that's Jesus. We get to join in this fellowship, offering right here in Christ, with each other, brothers and sisters, the family of God in this place. So I ask that you would let this time not just drift by, just taking the the bread and taking the wine and not really thinking about it. Can I ask that you would pause, please? And let this time drive us to the foot of the cross. Let this time bring freedom that comes with confession and repentance. There's freedom found in confession and repentance. There's freedom in being truthful about our sin. 
Let this time give us the faith to ask for the help to fight the fight that we fight daily with our sins and our temptations and our struggles. Let this time be a time that shapes our relationship with God, shapes our relationship with our fellow believers. Look around as you take this, this fellowship feast. Look around, we do it together. If you know someone else is struggling here, I'm looking around at many faces and I know a lot of what is going on in, in, in some of the lives here. I know. Please be assured that I will be praying for you as I sit in and as I take this communion. I will be asking for God to help you and minister to you in this moment. Can I ask that you two would do the same? In fact, right now, just, just have a look around. It's going to be awkward. Please, can you look around? Can you see the people around you? Can you turn? Can you look across the church? That awkward eye contact. See these faces. These are people God has put us amongst. Pray for them when you take this. As we look to Jesus Christ, he was the law keeper for us. He is the mediator. He is the burnt offering. He paid the price, the atonement for our sin. And he is the fellowship offering who assures us. I have chosen that word to put in right at the end because it's so key. The Lord Jesus Christ assures us of our relationship with God. We are children of God. We have an assurance of that. Why? Not because of what we do in light of these things. No, we have an assurance because of what he has done. So if you are struggling this morning and you are not sure that is doubt, that is fear, that is worry, can you look to him? Your assurance comes not from yourself. Your assurance comes from him. Look to Jesus. He's done it. He loves you. He knows. He cares. Take, confess, repent, be liberated, be transformed. Let's respond and change lives. And then we'll respond after a while in singing. Let me pray. Father, there are times when we need help to walk this way. Father, there are times when we need help to process. Father, I just pray, please, that you would help us as a, as a, a family of believers in this, in this place. Help us to have assurance of our salvation because we look and see the Lord Jesus Christ and see his perfection. Father, we feel, we feel weak, we do. There are things in our life which is, just feel so overwhelming. We can't cope and we struggle, Father, sometimes even here in this perfect standard can bring with it guilt and shame or pride. Father, I just pray that as we take this time to take and remember that we'd remove any pride. Father, help us to confess. Help us to repent. Father, help us, I pray, to ask for help. Father, help us to have freedom and forgiveness and repentance and not just take and move on to properly gaze and see the Lord Jesus Christ. We need your spirit to help us do that. Please, by your spirit, would you do that? Father, for those that don't know you yet in this place today, I pray even now that you would, by your spirit, be speaking life to them now, that you would be moving in life. Father, I pray for us who believe as we take this, that you would give us a joy in our heart to know what has been done, to know who we are, to know that we are free in Christ, and to know that we have etern every eternal blessing. Father, transform our lives. We need you, and we ask for help in this. Amen.